0: Well, Isaiah is in the midst of describing the new life in the kingdom when Christ arrives. And he has spent the last couple of chapters, chapters 25 and 26, uh, discussing the entrance of the faithful into the strong city of God. And it's been a beautiful imagery of relying upon the salvation that God has to offer where perfect peace is found and experienced. And now in Isaiah 27, we see that Isaiah continues to describe the new life of the people of God when Christ comes. And he's going to use some pretty big imagery. We're going to break it into the the various pieces along the way. But you'll notice as we study this chapter four times, Isaiah is going to say, "...in that day." And as we've seen in Isaiah, that phrase in that day is one of those big clues for us that Isaiah is not staring at the present, but is looking out into the future, particularly to the coming of the Christ and the arrival of His kingdom and looking at what that kingdom will do, what the Messiah will accomplish, what life in that kingdom is going to be like. And so as we go through this chapter, observe those four instances as Isaiah is reminding us that he's looking out to that future of the hope that would exist when Christ comes. And as we read it, then remember then that Isaiah is looking at us. Isaiah is looking at us. What are the people of God going to be when Christ comes and establishes his kingdom? All right, let's start with just verse one. The first image is just the first verse of Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord with His hand and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. You're all right. <laughs> there's a there's a start. <laughs> there's quite a start. Uh, Leviathan. Interesting imagery that is used right here uh, as he pictures the Lord now in his strength. Grabbing this great, strong, hard sword, punishing and slaying the Leviathan. So kind of a neat image. God's going to to slay the dragon. He's going to punish the serpent, he, he describes here. This is used, this Leviathan image is used a few times in the scriptures. And every time it's used, it's used of an immensely powerful enemy. Remember, even Job speaks of the Le- Leviathan, actually God speaks of Leviathan to Job, and says, you think you can go up against it? Uh, as he points to one of the apparent animals of creation. And that image then gets used throughout the Old Testament prophets on occasion to refer to some immensely powerful images of some immensely powerful enemy uh, that stands against God's people. In particular, one of the things that's interesting is Isaiah 74 where the Leviathan is used as a description of Egypt and it depicts the power of Egypt, Egypt as the great Leviathan being struck down as God would now set the people free out of that Egyptian slavery, cross the Red Sea and go toward the land of promise and the psalmist in Psalm 74 is recounting that story about how that great Leviathan, that Egypt was destroyed, and God delivered his people from that great enemy that was tormenting them. Also very interesting, not only Leviathan. Notice verse 1 connects Leviathan not only as a serpent, but as a dragon. And the dragon is also pretty rare in the Scriptures, and it carries that same image of some powerful enemy of God's people. Over in Ezekiel 29 and Ezekiel 32, we see the prophets using the dragon image again to Egypt. It speaks of the Pharaoh. He is the dragon and how he was going to be slain, and this is the deliverance of God. God's people. Perhaps most useful is Isaiah himself in chapter 51 and verse 9 uses the dragon image and speaks of it directly as the Pharaoh of Egypt there. So what you are picturing then, what Isaiah is seeing is that the great enemy of God's people is going to be destroyed, but he's not speaking of it in the past tense. He says, looking forward, in that day... There's the Leviathan, the dragon, that's going to be slain. It's going to be punished. That great enemy of God's people is going to be struck down. And that is going to be their freedom, their deliverance from their slavery. So Isaiah, real interesting image to start in this first verse. And of course we have to ask the question, Then, well what is he talking about? What is he looking forward to? Because surely he's not thinking about Egypt, even though that is the commonality of that image. The symbol is, who is the enemy of God's people? Well, I think it is interesting that we don't read about dragons really in the New Testament, do we? Uh, That imagery is pretty well kept quiet once we leave the prophets. It rarely appears even in the prophets themselves. But it is curious that we come into Revelation. In chapter 19, you get an image of Christ riding in on this white horse. And he is displayed as being victorious over the nations, over the kings of the earth, over the enemies. If you remember that image, you have on his leg, king of kings, lord of lords. He has the sword that has come out of his mouth and he is splattered with blood as he has been victorious over those enemies. And if you take that chapter break out and just flow with that image of this conquering Christ... Chapter 20 begins as speaking about this angel of God. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And it seems like what Isaiah is doing is he is taking that image of Leviathan, the great enemy of God's people, and he is applying it to Satan. And I think it's important to consider. In the book of Revelation, why is the devil getting the dragon image? Why not call him a scorpion? Why not call him some horrible monster? Why not give him some beast image or something like that? Well because the dragon image stands for the opponent of God's people and he is the ultimate opponent of that when you read of him in chapter 12 as he rises up and causes uh, the torment of the people of God that's what chapter 12 describes in that book here is the great red dragon he is pulling down all of the stars pulling down all of this power and his effort is to go about destroying the people of God and so So John in the Revelation, as well as Isaiah, uses the dragon serpent imagery and says, that refers to Satan, that is the evil one, that is your great enemy. And so what Isaiah is doing is fairly simple as he reaches to the Leviathan dragon image and says, when Christ comes... He is going to slay the ultimate opponent. He is going to destroy the last great enemy that stands over you. He is going to deal with the one who has enslaved you to sin and He is going to bring about the new exodus. That's why He uses Leviathan. Because Leviathan stood as Egypt. And when Leviathan fell, then God's people who had been enslaved in Egypt are now set free. And so now Satan becomes that image of the dragon, the Leviathan. And when Christ comes, there's going to be the ultimate deliverance of God's people. They will be set free from their sins. And you see that imagery used in Revelation 19 and 20, picturing the conquest the slaying, the conquering of Satan himself. Now, as we go through Isaiah chapter 27, you'll notice, though the imagery shifts away from Leviathan, you will see that this line of thinking continues about how God's people are now seen as victorious rather than defeated like we have seen earlier in the book of Isaiah. Let's go to verse 2 and let's follow how it goes. Verse 2 of Isaiah, chapter 27. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots. And fill the whole world with fruit. Alright, notice the shift of the image. Now in verse 2 he says, I want to sing of a beautiful vineyard. Now I hope that rings bells. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 5 what Isaiah did. He sung of a vineyard there. And he sung of how God had cultivated this beautiful vineyard, choice land, cleared and cultivated everything, prepared a beautiful plant, beautiful vineyard. God goes to the vineyard to look for fruit. What does he find? Wild grapes. What does God do? He destroys that vineyard. He wrecks it to pieces, tills it over, says that if you're not going to bear fruit properly, then that's going to be the end. Now Isaiah comes along in chapter 27 and says, let me sing again about a vineyard. Ah, but this time it's a fruitful vineyard. This time it's a pleasant vineyard, a good vineyard, he says. And notice what is being sung this time around about the vineyard. Number one, God is the keeper of the vineyard now. Before, God said, all right. Not my vineyard turned all the bricks over till all the plants over. What is he going to do? He's going to ruin that land. If it doesn't produce fruit, you're not going to keep it. Now he says, I'm going to have a new vineyard and this time it's going to bear fruit. So I'm going to be the keeper of it. I'm going to attend it. I'm going to take care of it. Notice the language that's used there in verse three. Beautiful image. He waters it every moment. Now, if you did that with plants, you'd kill the thing. But it shows God's just attentive. He's right there. He's keeping the vineyard giving it water constantly, this living water constantly flowing into this vineyard, providing and caring for it. He says, I'm guarding it day and night. No one's going to come against this vineyard. No one's going to destroy it. And in fact, I think the most beautiful words of this vineyard song is in verse 4. I have no wrath. And I just read that and I go, wow. That's unbelievable. Because you're talking about a bunch of people that are a mess. You are talking about sinful people. And you, Isaiah, are picturing a day when God is going to have a vineyard and He's going to be the keeper of that vineyard and He's going to take care of it and water it and protect it and not have wrath toward that vineyard. In fact... The wrath that God will have rather than being toward the vineyard, toward the people of God, is actually now going to be turned to the enemies of God. Notice it there. He says in verse 4, basically, I wish I had thorns and briars so that I could go wipe them out. <laughs> I love that. Bring up an enemy. Go ahead. Give me something. I'll destroy anything that comes up against my people. I will destroy it. I am going to wipe it out. Verse 4 is awesome. I would march against them I would burn them up together anything that tries to invade this vineyard I will wipe it out I will destroy it God is saying I will prove myself to you I will show you my goodness and I will deal with all of your enemies I will wipe them out and then he presses it even further and warns the enemies verse 5 you should make peace with God or be destroyed enemies of God take note Because God is now standing for His people. God is protecting this vineyard. Every enemy is going to be destroyed. Every briar, every thorn bush, everything that is contrary to God and His people, God is going to wipe out. So verse 5 says, You better lay hold of my protection. You better find peace with me. You should come in before it's too late so that you don't experience that wrath. And then notice how the picture moves forward as he says there is a result to all of this in verse 6. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with the fruits. Here is this picture now of the vineyard being what God had always wanted it to be. Israel had failed in being the vineyard of God and being fruitful throughout the nations and flowing to all the earth. And God has already described in Isaiah, I'm going to destroy Judah. I'm going to destroy uh, Israel. It's going to be taken away. But there's going to be a time in the future and there is going to be a new Israel. And this time my people will be fruitful. This time they're going to bear fruit and it's going to be fruitfulness all throughout the earth. Exactly what God was looking for from his people. And so the Lord then begins to receive what he expected to happen. While Isaiah 5 described the failure, now God describes the victory and the fruitfulness as he sees the fruit that he was expecting from his people. And so one of the things that I think we can do in summarizing what God is describing here as he's tied verse one to the exodus is he is describing that those who experience this exodus, those who have been set free from sin, they are kept for and they are cared for by God and therefore they are bearing fruit throughout all the earth, an image of fruitfulness from God's people. I don't think it's by any accident that Jesus relates heavily to that. Even the Apostle Paul does in speaking of the fruit of the Spirit and the need for bearing fruit as God's people. But Jesus powerfully uses that in John chapter 15 as He says, I am the vine. Here's I am that vineyard, and you are the branches. You need to be connected to Me. Any that does not bear fruit, He tears off and casts away. And so Jesus now draws that to Himself in John 15. And then listen to what Jesus continues to do in that chapter in John 15. By this, My Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. This is how we know we are part of this fruitful vineyard. This is how the true people of God look is that they have experienced the exodus of sin. They have experienced this victory, and by doing so, they are now propelled into fruitful living such that Jesus can say, this fruit is how you glorify God. This is how God is praised. And Isaiah spent a lot of time about that. Remember what we saw last time, chapter 26, verse 8. We spent a lot of time in uh, in our Wednesday night class. How Isaiah described your name and your remembrance So the desire of our souls. Your glory, God, is my whole desire. Your honor, Your praise is my whole life. And here Jesus says the same thing. The Father is glorified when the people of God are fruitful. And that fruit is an expanding throughout all the earth. John 15, verse 16, I think the imagery of Isaiah helps us understand what Jesus is saying. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Here is Jesus speaking like Isaiah here. I've chosen this vineyard. I've chosen this fruitful Israel. I've chosen you to be fruitful in Me. Look at how I have accomplished these things, that you bear fruit and glorify God in bearing that fruit. And so it's a great picture of God being glorified by the way we bear fruit. We become this new Israel in Christ and we are fruitful as that Israel. And we must see that as a joyful task. We desire to bear fruit because we have experienced the exodus from sin. Because we have been set free from the slavery of sin. We've been set free from Satan's grasp. And therefore we want to bear fruit and that is cultivated in our lives, in our hearts, in our actions. And so that's the picture that he gives. And now watch how he presses this a little bit further in what this is supposed to look like for his people. From verses 7 to 11, he's going to turn back now to Israel in the present and show them some really important things about what God is trying to do for them to help open their eyes to the goodness of God and what God is accomplishing. Verse 7. Has He struck them as He struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contend with them. He removed them with the fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones... Crushed to pieces. No Asherim, no in, or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like a wilderness. There will be calf, uh, the calf gra. There the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When the boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire for them. Now, notice how Isaiah steps out of that in that day image for a moment. He pulls back to the present and he asks his present audience a really important question. And he says, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? The question is essentially this. God has not dealt with you, Judah, like He has dealt with the world nations. When He struck Assyria, that was the end of them. And we've already read the prophecy back in chapter 13. When He strikes Babylon, it will be the end of them. He's already decreed that it will be the Persians that will rise up and utterly destroy the Babylonians, chapters 13 and 14. And now Isaiah turns and asks the question, has God dealt with you the same way? And the implication is He should have. No better. Certainly no different. Certainly just as worthy of judgment as all the other nations, but they need to recognize God's grace. He says, look at what God has done. He has not struck you like He has struck the others. Though He is going to punish you, though He is going to judge you, it will not be like what happens to Assyria. It will not be like what happens to Babylon. It is going to be different. God is remaining faithful to His covenant promise given all the way back to Abraham, and He is not going to totally annihilate this nation. And so here's the idea verses 8 and 9 you're going to be removed from the land so that sin will be removed from you. You will go into exile so that sin can be driven far from you. Rather than extinguishing you, rather than turning out the lights to the nation of Judah never to rise again, scrapping God's plan of salvation to the world, he says... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you away. I'm going to take you off the land. You will be exiled by the fierce breath of His mouth or the fierce breath of his, this east wind, He says. But here's what's going to happen. In removing them off the land, they will develop a remorse for sin. They're supposed to develop a penitent awareness of their place before God. They're supposed to see who they are, recognize what God has accomplished. They're going to learn from this. They're going to bear fruit because of this. In fact, notice the particular fruit that he wants them to understand in verse 9. Therefore, by this, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of sin. What's going to be the full fruit? When he makes all the stones of the altars, like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. He calls for the eradication of their idolatry, which, by the way, remember is what God did before they entered the land of promise as God gave them the commands there at Sinai, He said, you will put these idols away and you will serve the true and living God. And so here as we embark on this prophecy of a new exodus, He says, here's what's going to happen. My people will be fruitful. But one of the key pieces of fruit of His people is the eradication of idols. Going to remove that idolatry. It is going to be taken away from them. That is the picture that He wants them to see. We need an image, a reminder, a constant place in our hearts that the people of God in bearing fruit, that includes for us then cutting idolatry out of our hearts, out of our desires, out of our actions. Because God is picturing in this new vineyard, this new kingdom that Christ would establish, a people who will not have their hearts pulled away by idols. He says, I'm going to take them off the land and when I have my remnant, when I have my new people, when I have this fruitful vineyard, they're not going to have altars anymore. They're going to break all those false idols down. There's not going to be false worship anymore. And notice what drives that in verse 9. Therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. Understanding God's atonement is supposed to lead us to striking down the idols. That's what's supposed to want us then, to make us, to to desire to rid the idols out of our lives. Is seeing the atonement that God has accomplished. That's why here I Isaiah starts this way. Did God treat you, Israel, like you should have? No. He's shown you grace. He's going to send you off the land and he's going to have your sin atoned for in that day. And when that happens, that's supposed to be cause the desire of your heart to shatter these altars and never turn back to idolatry again. And for us, the same idea. We don't want idols because we are aware of our sin. We are aware of the gravity of what that means before God. We understand God's wrath toward wickedness and His wrath toward idolatry. And instead, we are going to come before Him with thankful hearts because of the atonement that has been accomplished through Christ. So Isaiah is picturing it a glorious time and God's people are going to understand that they will not trust in those idols. I did a whole series on idolatry two years ago and advise if you wouldn't mind you go replay some of those about idolatry. But let me give you a quick summary of what idolatry is. Because it's easy for us to look around and go, we don't have idols. There's no Dagon sitting in the corner of my, my uh, place. There's no Asherah pole that's over there in the, in the study. You know, there's no Baal altar sitting there in the foyer. Uh, so I don't have any idols. Anything that puts any of our hope or trust or desire is an idol. All of our trust is to be squarely on God. And if there is any ounce of desire, any ounce of trust, any ounce of reliance upon anything else but God, friends, that is an idol because our heart has been pulled to something else. And the people of God don't worship idols, Isaiah says. When Christ comes, they will not have idolatry in their hearts. They will not bend the knee to any altar, any idol, anything else but God because He has accomplished atonement. And because of that atonement, the people will worship Him and worship Him alone. And so Isaiah looks forward to it and says, Israel, I haven't destroyed you utterly so that I can atone for your sins. And the response to that atonement is to be crush the idols, rip it out of our lives, destroy it utterly and worship the true and living God as he has called us to do. That's where our hope and our trust squarely lie is in our Lord and in him alone to depend upon anything else on anyone else is the definition of idolatry. Now watch how he pulls forward as he rounds out the end. Verse 12. In that day, back to this vision, looking forward when Christ comes. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain. And you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Great finale now of a harvest image. And I hope that you will feel how the New Testament has used all of these. This Exodus idea, we see Jesus using it. This picture of a vineyard, how often Jesus told parables telling of that. And now we have a harvest imagery and Jesus told parables of that. Isaiah is so relevant to what Jesus was talking about and using that same imagery. And so here is the picture in verse 12, God is going to gather his people in. There is a time when God is going to bring all His people in. In fact, verse 12 is interesting because you will notice that that's the original land borders of Israel as it first began, from the river Euphrates all the way to the brook of Egypt. These are the original land borders that were given to Israel. And here is what God says. I'm going to move through that land, and I'm going to pull my people out. I'm going to thresh the grain, and I'm going to find who's mine. And they're going to belong to me, O my people Israel. But then He adds... even more because in verse 13 he pictures a worldwide exodus where he describes the lost of the world all the way from Assyria all the way to Egypt all the lost now having the opportunity to come and worship at the mountain of God to belong in this kingdom and to serve the true living God you may, may remember a few chapters back, remember how Isaiah pictured Egypt, Israel, and Assyria as one unit, one nation. This one encompassing nation where altars to the Lord would be found in Egypt, they'll be found in Assyria, there'll be a highway between them all. It's going to be the world worshiping God. And now Isaiah uses that same imagery again. All the lost, all that have suffered, all that are strained in their relationship and separated from God now are able to experience the Exodus as well. It is not simply to Israel alone. It is a picture of the whole world finding atonement and all the peoples of the earth coming and worshiping God full of praise because of the atonement that they have found in the Lord. Some quick thoughts then for the road tonight. Think about what Isaiah has taught for us this evening. Number one, if we put all of these images together, I think we could begin like this. What God is pictured as doing in these few chapters, and particularly in chapter 27, is transforming people into beautiful, fruitful plants through the atoning and conquering work of Christ and placing them in this glorious, beautiful vineyard. Before, these plants are fruitless. They are worthless. They are worthy of judgment, worthy of God's wrath. He says what's going to happen is I'm going to transform that. Now I'm going to have people who through the atoning work and conquering work when this Christ comes... What he will accomplish is people being fruitful to the Lord. They are now going to bear fruit, and it is going to be a glorious thing. And so verse 1 said it's going to happen because they've been set free. Christ is going to come. He's going to destroy the great enemy of God's people, setting them free from their sins. That will be a catalyst for their worshiping God. Further, he says, and he's not going to have wrath toward his people. There is no fear for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing to be concerned of, for God has no wrath toward this vineyard. Those who are His, those who belong to Him, that's the imagery. Is God is defending this vineyard. God is fighting against the enemies. He is putting them all down and is in fact calling the enemies to change their stance from being an enemy to now being part of this kingdom and being fruitful for the Lord. Third, that means we must be fruit bearers. We need to think about what we are doing to bear fruit in the kingdom of God. To bring in this morning's lesson that we talked about how it's so important to live with the reality of the future. To live in the reality that there is a resurrection. And living in that reality is bearing fruit. It is being fruitful to God. What we say, what we do is all about our Lord and His kingdom. That is the only pursuit worth pursuing. It is the only activity worth engaging in. That's the only thing that matters is pursuing that kingdom, pursuing the ways of God and bearing fruit toward that. And don't forget one of the key aspects of fruitfulness, the eradication of idolatry. Anything that is taking our hearts, taking our time, taking our efforts away from our Lord and His kingdom must be removed. It must be cut out. And this is the great ending. In spite of the world's rebellion, in spite of our rebellion, God is willing to gather the lost world in. To participate in the glorious kingdom under which Christ reigns. Christ rules over the nations, rules over the earth. He is allowing the rebellious to now participate in that kingdom, come to Him, bend the knee, glorify the Father, and worship Him. We have no right to that kind of blessing to take what should have been cast into the fire and destroyed. And say, I will make you my fruitful people. I will send my Savior. I will send my Son. I will send the one to deal with sins. So that rather being cast out into darkness and being cast into fire, you can be my fruitful people. And I will protect you. And I will defend you. And I will have no wrath towards you at all. That should make us want to come to Him. And that should desire, make us desire fruitfulness and to give Him everything that we have. Pull your psalm books out. we sing seen invitation song inviting you to see the glorious work that God has accomplished through His Son. Isaiah looked forward to a glorious day in hope when there would be an exodus from sin, where there would be a new kingdom that would come, where God's people could flourish and be saved and protected by God. And that was accomplished when Christ came. As Christ comes to the earth, He dies for our sins, raises for our justification so that we can enter into that kingdom, so that we can be forgiven of sins, that we can be set free from Satan and his snares, and we can be now pronounced innocent by God and now bear fruit through all the earth. That's the best purpose you can have in life. It doesn't get any better than that. Won't you come? Won't we stand, Won't we sing.